Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Drinkon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to The Eternal Optimist Podcast. My name is Matt Drinkon, and I am thrilled, honored to be here with you today as your host for this show. This is the show where we're gonna go deep with stories about overcoming challenges and learning to take every single day, every single thing in front of us and learn from it. Everything can be an opportunity to learn. Everything can be an opportunity to enjoy the moment, lean into the moment and take something away from the moment. The hard stuff, we may not enjoy that right now. And there may be amazing lessons yet to learn from the most complicated things that happen in our lives. Today's guest, before we get to him, because this is a big one today, before we get to today's guest, I'm going to invite you to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Eternal Optimist Podcast, and join me in a live stream every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern. As your host, Matt Drinkon here, I will share with you a journal entry, things going on in the world that are worth being a part of, and we will share stories and work on our games as business people, as parents, as human beings on how we might live eternal optimism. Join me on the live stream. Now, today's episode's a real treat for me, my friends. I've got Steve Farber on the show today. And if you haven't heard of Steve, he's played a pivotal role in my development. He didn't know that when we first met because Steve Farber wrote a book called Radical Leap almost 20 years ago. And that book was gifted to me by one of my leaders back in the great Vector Marketing Cutco Cutlery organization at the time. When I got this book, Radical Leap, it was one of the first business books that influenced me to raise my empathy and to use love, love, as a way to connect with people and show up positively in the world. And Steve Farber does that over and over and over again in everything that he does. To give you an example, we open up today and I asked Steve the challenge that he has faced throughout his whole career, something that stands out to him. And he paused. He thought about right now in the moment, the challenge he's having. Because genuinely in his past, he had things that were hard for him. And at the same time, he learned and made it through every single step of the way. So he didn't look at things as challenging in the past. He looks at the things he's looking at right now in his world and how he worked through those. Steve is amazing. By the end of our discussion today, you're gonna to be in love with this man. And at the same time, I challenged him. I see in the background of this Zoom, and if you're ever on YouTube, you watch this, this is amazing. Steve has got a collection of guitars in the background. And I asked him about one of them, and he gifts us with a live rendition of a song on the spot at the end of the, today's episode. It is my sincere pleasure to introduce you to a man who's impacted me in a number of ways throughout my professional development, my career, and someone, when you hear his stories and hear his voice and how he communicates and impacts the world, he will put on a masterclass today, my friends. I hope you enjoy my conversation with my new friend, Mr. Steve Farber. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast, the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and want to make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. I'd love to welcome to the show my new friend and someone that I have admired for a long time because he's had an impact on my life with his book, Radical Leap, almost 20 years ago now. Let's welcome to the show, Mr. Steve Farber. Steve, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Absolute pleasure. Across the mile. Oh, absolutely. And something random just happened, team. If you're listening, I had to very rudely put Steve on hold because a door-to-door salesman was coming to our house. And normally my wife handles that, but this person was smoking. So my wife said, this is an interesting character. Can you handle this one? So that was, that just happened. We learned a lot of interesting sales techniques over the years. Remember that one. (laughs) I don't know how successful that one is, but it's certainly a technique. I bet it works really well when he's selling to smokers. Yeah. Yes, quite possibly. Steve, I appreciate you being here today and I'd love to dive straight in. Go to something challenging that's happened in your world and it can be any time frame from right now to all the way back to childhood, but we'd love to unpack something that was hard for you and what you learned from it. So please take us back. We're not having a good number of those in our lifetime, then we're probably not growing. So I'll share one that's a little more recent. I am coming to you today from the Kansas City area. I have lived since the late 80s in California. I've lived in San Diego since 1998. So when you put it all together, we moved from San Diego to Kansas City just about three and a half months ago. We moved here because we have a new grandbaby. Not just because we have a new grandbaby, but because we have one who lives here. Yes. (laughs) And not by herself. She lives here with her parents, of course. (laughs) Our youngest went to school in Kansas, met her husband there. They stayed in Kansas. And out of six kids between Veronica and me, this is the first grandchild and it's from our youngest kid. Wow. We decided to move where the action is. So I present that as in the context of a challenge because it's always a challenge moving to a new environment. It's always a challenge moving to a completely different (laughs) climate. We didn't leave San Diego because we didn't like it. A lot of times I'll hear people say, oh, you're so lucky to get out of California. I don't think so. I love California. I love San Diego. But it was a more compelling reason to come here, obviously. At least it's obvious to us, which is why we did it. But it's still a challenge because establishing a new set of relationships, new neighbors, learning our way around. I don't, I still don't go anywhere without putting into the GPS. I have no idea where the hell I am, frankly. But the other part of the challenge for us was our moving truck between San Diego and our new home in Kansas City crashed. It flipped over, and I'm going to say 80 to 90% of our stuff was either destroyed or damaged or just didn't even show up. We have things that just didn't show up because they did deliver. The truck crashed. They transferred everything into a new truck and delivered it in whatever condition it was in. So they were pulling stuff off the truck, broken couches, broken furniture, and just putting it right into the garage and salvaging whatever we could salvage. And then it was like, hey, where's that lamp that was in the, it's not here, didn't show up. Silverware that was been in our family for years didn't show up. So it was traumatic in a lot of ways, but it was much more difficult for my wife, I think. 
I know it would. I have a kind of a natural resilience with things like this. Not that it's not painful, but I have a tendency to be, I don't know, what's the right phrase? An eternal optimist. Nice phrase. phrase. It's a good phrase, and you should consider using it. it. It's the way I'm built. Where it really hit home was around Christmas, and we have this tradition in our family since the kids were little that they all have like their own set of ornaments that we added to every year, and they were all gone except for a few. And that really sent my wife into a bit of a pit. It's been an interesting thing because, for one, it really highlighted for me the importance of perspective. And it also highlighted for me how important our response to other people's challenges are. And what I mean by that is we had a lot of people say to us, hey, you're insured, right? Yeah, we're insured. Okay, it's your opportunity to get all new stuff, which is true. And it's honestly where my brain goes. And we are. That's exactly what we're doing. But at the same time, it also discounts the real emotion that's going on in the moment. I have a tendency to reach out to other people and say, oh, everything's going to be fine. And even though that may be true, because that's my eternal optimism point of view, it's not necessarily helpful in the moment for that person. So that's been a big learning for me is to check my response to other people when they're going through something that they perceive as a great challenge, a setback, a trauma, even though to me it might seem like it'll be fine. It doesn't feel that way to them. So that's fresh off the boat, as it were. Natural resilience over time built up. This experience has been traumatic, but it's something you were able to move through. I'm wondering about this natural resilience, Steve, and can you trace back to where this began and how it's helped you in your career and your life? Yeah, I can trace back to where I began to notice it. I don't know that I could say it's cause and effect. I think a lot of it is my nature. So there's probably some genetics involved in this somewhere, I'm guessing. But I've had significant challenges from the time I was little. When I look at other people that may have had the same challenges at the same time, they might have responded differently to it. So specifically, my mother died when I was eight years old. If you can imagine the trauma of a little kid not really understanding what's going on at all and being totally surprised by it. She died of cancer and she was dying for a long time. But in those days, and I was born in 1958, so this was the early 60s, in my family in those days, they try to quote unquote protect the children. So from my father's point of view, he didn't want me to know that she was battling for her life. I knew she was in the hospital a lot. I knew all that. I was kept from the full picture. So when she died, it was bang. To me, it was like, out of nowhere. So having to come to grips with, well, where did she go? (laughs) And what do I do now? So I grew up as the kid that didn't have a mom. Of course, it was traumatic, but it also became a part of who I am in the sense that my situation was different, made me feel different. But I say that in a positive way, different in a good way. And because I was very fortunate to be surrounded by really wonderful, compassionate people, both in my family and in my neighborhood that I lived, and everybody extended such warmth and concern for this little kid, for me when I was a little feller, that just had a big impact on me. After that, I guess there's a part of me that figured, well, after that challenge, and that turned out okay in the grand scheme of things, not that I was happy about it, but that's just the way that I've been with all kinds of challenges throughout my life. I started as an entrepreneur when I was very young. I started a family very young. I had three kids and a business before I was 30 years old. That business went down in flames and there was a bankruptcy and there was all kinds of stuff 
that at the time felt like there was just no way I was ever going to get through it. Looking back at it now, it's like, oh yeah, there was that time that thing happened, <laughs> right? But back then it was like, I'm never going to get out from under this. So the lesson I learned from that, back to the second part of your original question, Matt, is that everything passes. Everything is temporary, the good and the bad. Therefore, it's important to pay attention to the moment and have great people around you who are there to celebrate you when things are great and to support you when things aren't, because all of us go through all of that. You just struck a real nerve here. Three kids and a business by 30. And here I am. We started our family when I was 35, 36, and they're all very young right now. So that's amazing to hear that. At that moment when three kids by 30 and a business, which eventually went down in flames, you say, how did you make it through that? It was a combination of things. Again, I got some help from close family. People would lend me money to pay the bills and feed the kids little things like that. And then I had a close relative who had passed away and she left me some money, which kept me going through the short term. But there's a whole other level to the story. And that is, I had no idea what I was going to do. Zero. I knew two things with equal clarity. One is there was something I was supposed to be doing on this planet. I was very clear about that. The other thing I was equally clear of at the time is that I had no freaking idea what it was. And I had certain talents. I was good at communicating. I was a musician. I was creative. How do you monetize that stuff when people need to eat right now? And then what happened was I was having a discussion. I was in this quest mode to find out what I'm supposed to be doing and what direction I can go in. And I had a friend who was talking to you one day. We were catching up and she told me about another mutual friend who was, and this is how vague it was, doing some kind of training for corporations. That was it. That's all she said. And all my lights went on. And I said, that's it. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> but then I went out and I discovered there's a whole industry, which at the time we called training and development. I started looking into that and talking to people. And a small consulting company gave me a shot teaching one of their workshops. And I slapped professional trainer on my resume. And I got picked up by an international company. This all was in like 1987, maybe. By 1994, I had a lot of experience and I was hired by the Tom Peters company, became a vice president there, and it's just been a trajectory up from there. It came out of a pit, man. It came out of such darkness and such pressure. It wasn't like I sat down, knew exactly what my goals were, and architected a plan to get there. You hear all the time from various motivational people, set your goals and make your plans against your goals, and all, which is great stuff. But that wasn't the case for me. It was really more instinct. Once I figured out what that was, all of my attention went towards it. It worked. Now, as I said a few minutes ago, I look back on this stuff and it's like, oh yeah, that was really tough. But it was more than really tough. It was brutal. Again, I share that story not to claim that my experience was so unique from other people's. We all have our own versions of that. But some people survive those things and some people don't. Not surviving was never an option for me. And I think there was always a part of me that had a big vision, even in the midst of the darkness, because I just knew there was something that I was going to be able to be a part of, make a contribution to, et cetera. It turns out there was, and there is, and there continues to be. I would love to put what is and is continuing to be on a pedestal and share everything you're doing. Before we get to that, I'd just love to appreciate you for a moment on some of the things that I've heard. And for our listeners out there who are looking for hope or looking for a you-can-do-it-to attitude, we're seeing a model of that right now. Steve had incredibly challenging circumstances around the age of 30. 
He didn't know exactly what was going to happen next. He had a good support system around him. And without knowing exactly where it's going, he just found it one day because he kept going. And then he grinded for seven or eight years in training. Then the story starts to pick up even more. But just to show that you don't have to have it all figured out at the super young age. I'm 45 and still figuring it out. And Steve is an old 45 and he's still figuring it out. That's amazing resilience that you have a smile on your face now. Hey, I see some guitars in the background. They made it, it looks like. Yes, and some of them were not on the truck. So the more valuable ones we actually took on the plane. The ones that are hanging on the wall, obviously they all made it, and those were more valuable guitars. I did have one guitar that did not make it. It was pretty much decimated. It was the least valuable monetarily, but I've had that guitar for a long time, so that was a drag. Yeah. But yeah, that's a big part of my life. Yeah, I'm curious because I'm not a musician. I'm not a guitar guy. My dad had a guitar. Were you, when you were in your musician phase, and maybe you're still there now, tell us a little bit about this musician, Steve Farber. I've been a musician almost all my life. I started playing, I'm going to guess, 50-some years ago. I turned 65 in January. I started playing guitar when I was about 13. Music has always been a big part of my life, and it was what I intended to do with my life professionally. As I mentioned, I started a family early, and it turns out that feeding people and being a musician were mutually exclusive pursuits. That's what I went into business throughout the off and on have played throughout the years. Over the last, I'm going to say, 10 years or so, I've really put a lot more attention on music. And when I give keynotes, for example, I will often play original music in the context of the keynotes. So I've integrated it into my life. It's just a part of who I am. It's another creative expression. So as you know, I write books and I'm a business guy. The modality for writing songs and performing music is not that foreign to those other pursuits. It's just a different mode. But it was a journey to integrate those two. Because when I went into business, I went into it because I abandoned the music to go into business in order to feed a family. So it was a painful separation when I made that decision that I'm not going to do that thing with my life. And I'm sure we have more than one or two frustrated musicians listening to this podcast. Again, that is not an unusual story. In fact, for any musician, it's a more common story. Much less common story is, I've always wanted to be a musician and I made a living doing it and I'm a rock star now. I mean, that's not a very common story. It happens, but not to most of us. So for me, to be able to go through that journey of integration of that music and not looking at it as an either or, but a both and of an opportunity has made all the difference in the world. I don't claim to be a Grammy winning musician when I bust out a guitar on stage at a business keynote, but I do, and I don't do it gratuitously. I tie it in in terms of the content and the point that I'm making and all of that. But for me personally, it's that it fills that need of performing. I get out in town and Kansas City has an amazing singer-songwriter community, just an incredible music town, as it turns out. And I'm playing more music out here than I ever did in San Diego in the first three and a half months that we've been here. I look forward to doing more of that. Then when we've created our new space here in our new home, my office, for those of you who are watching this on video and see the guitars hanging up there, this is my inspiration place. It looks like a music studio, but this is where I do my business. I sit in front of this computer when I'm at home and I'm not traveling and I'm writing and doing Zoom calls and all that. I can always at least look up at those guitars and every so often pick one up and play it during the day. It's great. 
Yeah, another appreciation coming your way, Steve. I'm looking at the pieces of the puzzle and the dots that I want to connect here. You shared a minute ago that you were always a little bit different growing up, different in a good way. And you've shared that both and is a mental model that you use to help you keep making progress. And you shared that you are an eternal optimist. The things that I've seen so far would lead me to believe that, yes, incredibly resilient. And yes, everything is happening, not to me, but through me or for me. So I feel that you are a body that eternal optimism. I'd love to go back to 87 to 94 when you were getting your chops in training and then you joined the Tom Peters company. What was that phase in your life like when you were starting to become really good at business? When I look at my business career, my successful business career, so not phase one where I had the company that crashed and burned. That was in the commodities futures business, which I was entirely ill-suited for and hated. It's interesting to have your own company and hate it but that's where I was. And then it went down in flames because I had a financial partner that bailed on me. So when that all shifted and I got into the training and development and consulting and all that, which was the late 80s through the early 90s, I really did have an opportunity to get really good at being a front of the room person. So I worked with a company that was international company that was based in Denmark, and they had a really terrific, uh, in today's language, we'd call it a cultural change program. Back then, it was more of a customer service kind of a thing. But we would work with entire companies over a period of time, maybe a couple of years, and we put everybody in that company through this two-day workshop. We take a diagonal slice of the company, so it's top to bottom across all functions, 120 people or so at a time. It was very presenter-driven, very entertaining, a lot of stories and a lot of skits and all kinds of stuff. Man, I just loved it. So in a very short period of time, I had very unique and intensive experience. And I also started to get a really broad base of perspective on business because we had a lot of different clients in different industries. And I'd worked with the whole company from top to bottom. So it was like this incredible fire hose of, oh, this is what business really is. One of my colleagues who was on the sales side of the house was recruited by the Tom Peters company. This was all in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time. For your listeners who are unfamiliar with Tom Peters, he's now 80 years old, but is, no exaggeration, the most significant and influential management thinker of our age. His original book was called In Search of Excellence, which changed the landscape of business and what it means to be in business. He's just now looking at retirement. Just came out with a new book like two months ago at 80 years old. He was one of my mentors. This person that I worked with, his other company, got recruited by Tom Peters to go to work at his company. She told me she was leaving and I said, what about me? And she introduced me to the president of the company at the time is a guy named Jim Kuzis. Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner are the authors of a book called The Leadership Challenge, which just came out in its seventh edition. They are the world preeminent experts on leadership. Even though it was the Tom Peters company, most of the work that we did was built around the leadership challenge. So Jim hired me at the Tom Peters company, eventually made me a vice president of the company. And I spent six years teaching and working with executives around the leadership challenge model. That's really what set me on the path for leadership. And my work is very deeply informed by Kuzis and Posner's work. I could not have planned that. I couldn't be, okay, I'll spend a few years doing this, and then I'll go over to this company, and then I'll have the Tom Peters name on my resume, and then I can go out on my own, and I can write my own books, and I can, but that's exactly the way it worked. I couldn't have planned it any better. 
things just happen. You put yourself in the way of, of change, of opportunity, and it happened. And as I may have mentioned earlier, one of the things that I was so inspired to be able to have the chance to meet you today is because you impacted my life. And I guess it was about 20 years, and that's the anniversary of your Radical Leap. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that book Radical Leap came together in publishing that? Today's sponsor of the Eternal Optimist podcast is preparation. Preparation. Do you want to really grow your confidence in this world? How might you do that? Be prepared. Take some action on the front end and prepare yourself for anything you're getting ready to do. Have you ever walked up into a meeting and just winged it and felt like it could have been better? Have you ever been in a conversation that, upon later reflection, you may have answered things or shared things in a slightly different frame? Well, guess what? You have this awesome opportunity today to practice preparation, which will empower you to get a little bit better, have a little bit more improvement in the things that we do on a regular basis. So guess what? You don't have to go to the store to buy preparation. You already have it right now. It is a chip that's already been implanted in your brain. And to access it, simply continue listening to this show. Speaking of which, back to the show. After I'd been at the Tom Peters Company for a while, I got the bug. There's a couple of things I wanted to do. I wanted to write a book. And I wanted to do more keynotes. We were doing a lot of off-site workshops and three, four, or five-day things sometimes. I wanted to do more speaking and tap into more of that kind of entertainer part of my experience that I've had. So we made a mutual decision that I should do that on my own. It took me six months to transition out of the Tom Peters company and move into just being Farber. In 2000 is when I went out on my own. I started to ask myself a question, which eventually led to the radical leap. That question was, based on this amazing experience that I've had, and all the great business people that I've met and the terrible leaders that I've met and the mentors that I've had, Tom and Jim and a guy named Terry Pierce. And based on all that, what do I think about all this? That's the question I asked. What's my opinion on all of this? Because I've been teaching other people's bodies of work and got my own experience in the process. And another way I asked the question was, based on everything that I've learned, if I had the power to make everybody get it, just get it. What would it be? What would I have them get? What would I have them do? What would I have them change? What would I have them engage in every day? And it was in answering that question that the framework for the radical leap emerged. And that is love, energy, audacity, and proof. They would cultivate love. They would generate energy. They would inspire audacity and they would provide proof. Once that became clear to me that I just started to flesh that out and said, okay, there's my book. Now I need to work on it. And it took me years to write that sucker. It's a small book, but it mm -hmm. took years. And it's written in the form of a novel. It gave me a chance to be creative again in terms of dialogue and characters and story, as well as explaining and teaching what those elements are. And to this day, nearly 20 years later, most of what I do is built around what has become a methodology of love, energy, audacity, and proof. I still speak about that in my keynotes. It's evolved, and I have lots of amazing examples of each of those by now. But I also use that when I work with companies who want to embrace that in their culture, make it a part of how they do business. It has 
been field tested now for 20 years. You read that book a long time ago, Matt, but I have people who've read the book for the first time yes. last week that still respond that way. It's been an amazing, incredibly gratifying thing. I don't know how the hell it happened, I have to say. I just tried to give voice to what I believed to be true from my experience. And my biggest concern when that book was first published was I was afraid that people wouldn't think that the content of the book lived up to the title. Because the title is The Radical Leap. And to me, the stuff in that book just didn't seem all that radical. It just seemed obvious. And as it turns out, it's pretty radical. The idea that love should be first and foremost in the way you do business as a competitive advantage, as a business leader, and in your company, turns out it's a pretty radical thought. And it's what I continue to work with today. It's helping people to figure out what should that look like in the way that we do business? What should love look like in the way that we run this company or I manage this team or, or whatever the context is? Or teach my students in my classroom? I have teachers and educators all over the country that have embraced LEAP as, a, as an educational model, which, again, I never planned for that. It wasn't on my radar screen, but there it is. Love is not something that I see every day out there in the cultural norms and values of companies that rarely actually do I see it. And when you figured this out, that this was so important, and it actually is very radical, I guess nowadays, how are you helping companies to see that love is important in the equation? My most recent book on the subject is called Love is Just Damn Good Business. It came out in 2019, I think. And again, it works with the LEAP framework, but it's not written as a novel. It's written more as a more traditional business book with lots of case studies and examples and all that. So what I do is I help individuals and companies to take the practice. If I really net it all out, it's how do you operationalize love day to day? What does that look like? For example, say that you love your customers, which is really easy to print the banners and the buttons that say that. But if you really loved your customers, what would you do differently? Or what should love look like for your customers? And if you really loved your employees, how would that affect your systems, your policies, your procedures, your comp and benefits, your hiring practices, the way you run meetings, the physical environment, if you have one? All of that is put through that filter. So that's what I do. When I say I, I mean I and my team, depending on the scope of the client. If I don't get into the weeds with all the HR stuff and all that, but one of my colleagues does, I tend to focus more on the coaching element and the broad-based communication. If I want to get the message out to an entire company through a keynote or an event, or whatever, and then I'll work with the senior executive team and other leadership teams within the company, one-on-one -on -one or in groups, depending. None of this is off the shelf. It really all depends on what the client needs mm -hmm. are, and then we structure it accordingly. But the whole point of this is really putting everything through the filter of what should love look like in the way that we do business. Right. And that's it's hard work because this isn't about love as a fluffy sentiment. It's about love as a practice and a discipline, which means those questions have to be answered in measurable, measurable, observable, behavioral terms that you can see clearly, is this working or is it not working? It's very different from saying, oh, I love you, man. Not that's a bad thing, but it's got to go beyond that. And I love where you are with this right now. And I'd love to ask, and of course, not breaking any confidentiality around it, but I'd love to ask, do you have an example you might share of just a case study of when you came in, it was not present. And then after coaching for a week, a month, a year, a few years, 
now it's permeating everywhere. Yeah, it's an interesting question because one of the, uh, first of all, we, yes, we have a lot of case study examples, and I'm happy to share with you on that. And it is rare that I'm brought in because the place is awful and it needs to be turned around. It does happen. I do have a client like that. But it's usually, under the circumstance is, this is what we want to do. We believe in this. We need help to do it better. So more often than not, there's a pretty good foundation to start with. But I'll give you an example of, of one that started out the way that you suggested. I hesitate on it because it's not a direct example of what I personally did to help turn them around because this happened before I met them. Okay. But I was still involved in it, just unknowingly. And here's what I mean. It's a company called Trailer Bridge. It's in Jacksonville, Florida. The CEO is a guy named Mitch Luciano. and Trailer Bridge, and I'm not speaking out of school when I tell you that in their past, Trailer Bridge, they were terrible. (laughs) They were just awful. It was a toxic place. They had burned through four CEOs in three years. Their customer numbers were terrible. They were losing money hand over fist. They went bankrupt. And then as they emerged from bankruptcy, Mitch had been brought in from another company as part of the management team. The board tapped him on the shoulder and said, (laughs) Your turn. We'd like you to be the next CEO. And he said, no, thank you. And then they asked him again, we'd really like you to be the next CEO. So here's the deal he made with them. He said he would take on the responsibility, but he wouldn't take the title. He said, you can call me president, but I'll need to earn the title of CEO. Because there's a lot of, they just burned through four of them in the last 10 minutes or whatever. So he said, there's, I need to earn CEO. When people feel I'm ready, when they trust me enough, then we can call me CEO. He said, but, is what he said to the board, here's the thing. You have to let me do this my way because I'm a love guy. I don't think he actually said those words, but that's what he meant. So this is what I meant when I said I was involved in this, but I didn't even know him at the time. Mitch was a huge fan of the Radical Leap, the Radical Edge, and Greater Than Yourself my first three books. They informed who he was as a leader. He put these things into practice himself, which was why he caught the attention of the board. So when they said, we want you to turn this place around, he said, I'm going to do it by operationalizing love. That's the way we're going to do it. Now, again, think about how radical this is. This is a place that had very high turnover. People hated working there. And he said, I want this. I want it to be a place that our customers are going to love, people are going to love working in, and that I'm going to love being here myself. So what he did was he started to put everything through that filter again of if this is going to be a place that people love, what do we need to do differently? And they looked at every aspect of their business from their customer policy. So for example, I'll give you one very much in the weeds example, and then I'll, I won't give you, they they just go on and on, but I'll give you this one just to illustrate. They had a longstanding policy. So first of all, just for context, Their business is shipping. So they primarily run barges from mainland U.S. to Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, a couple other places. So they ship containers of stuff on their barges. And they had a long-standing policy that unless their barge was at least 75% full, they would not sail. 
because if it was less than 75% full, that shipment they would lose money on. And obviously, they're not in the business to lose money, so they would not sail. Okay? So if you look at a balance sheet, eh, that makes sense. But if you look at it from the customer perspective, and you ask the question, if we loved our customer, what would we do under that same circumstance? So think about it from the customer's perspective. They're shipping a car to their family in Puerto Rico. They're told that it's going to be there on such and such a date. It doesn't show up. They call. They say, "How? where's the car? They say, it's still sitting in the harbor. Why is it still sitting in the harbor? Because we're only 75% full. We, we need to sell more space. I don't care. So the question was, if we loved our customer, what would we do? If you ask it that way, it's pretty obvious, right? What would you do? Ship it. You ship it. Yeah. You sail. So that's what they started doing. No matter what, they started sailing because that's what you do when you love your customer. So that's one example of literally hundreds of things that they did. And I'll just go to the bottom line. I haven't seen the latest numbers, but 2018, 2019 were two of the most profitable uh, in the history of the company. In fact, their revenue in those two years exceeded the previous 25 years of the company combined. They were voted number one best place to work in the city of Jacksonville. Then they were voted number two best place to work in the city of Jacksonville, which really pissed them off because they thought that they should be number one. And then during COVID, again, they were voted number one best place to work in the city of Jacksonville. And they're expanding and they're growing and they're more profitable than they've ever been over year after year. And if you ask Mitch, he will tell you they did it because they operationalized love. So I met them after that had already been going and got jumped in the stream partway down the line. So else in, in my work, it's very difficult, and I feel very reluctant to take credit for anything, even when I'm more involved day to day, because ultimately, I'm not doing it, they're doing it. What I'm doing is setting the initial conditions and helping them to stay focused on what's important. They're going to use their expertise in their industry to make it work. Because the upside of my work is that I've had exposure to just about every kind of industry you can imagine, just about every kind of company you can imagine. No exaggeration. I've at least had some exposure. The downside to that is what that means is I have expertise in none of them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have expertise in any industry. What I have expertise in is the one thing that they all have in common, at least for now, which is that they're all populated by human beings. And it's about bringing out that dynamic. So it's like having the key to the city in in that sense. But at the same time, I am very well aware that it is not me who makes those changes happen. And I'm also very well aware that I have no interest in convincing anybody of any of this. It's not my job to convince people that love is good business. My job is to confirm it for people who already believe that. And then help them to apply it. It's like, yeah, this, I think this love stuff is in business is bullshit. Convince me otherwise. No, thank you. <laughs> Not interested. <laughs> I'll give you examples. There are people like that who are sitting in my audience when I'm speaking, obviously. And then I'll have people say, oh, I never thought of it that way. I assumed you meant this, but really you mean something more practical and doable and all that. Yes. But I'm just not interested in coming in and fighting a fight that says, I got to convince you that love is important when you really don't believe it is. I appreciate that you've been so humble this entire time, not taking credit for it yourself, that they're doing the work. You have the principle 
that you're bringing to them. And if they are not interested in it, then fine. I feel the same way. I guess part of what I'm looking for today in our discussion, Steve, is a little bit of affirmation or validation. I might be on the right path. And I think you just confirm that, that you don't have to convince someone to change their mind if they are open to it and want it. They're probably more inspired to do it. Can I ask you a question? Anything. I just did. Let me ask you another one. Why the eternal optimist? What does that mean to you? Great question. I'm going to ask you the same thing here in a little while. It's part of the lightning round. But to me, it means that there's hope. You can do anything you put your mind to. I believe that everything I see has a positive lens over it. And all the hard stuff that we endure, we're learning something. Our greatest challenges are our greatest teachers. And the time that I had the spinal injury from the broken zip line to the time that I signed a lease at a new business, packed everything up into the office, into the U-Haul, show up at my new office. And the guy says, you know what, actually sign it to someone else after yours. And here's your deposit back and you can't have this office. Any Anything that, that could be challenging in the moment, even the worst day of my life, my dad died you know, 18 years ago. There's a gift in that. And I've learned a lot from it. So eternal optimism is simply a way of having a positive lens over things. And when the hard stuff happens, using it to our advantage or seeing it as a gift, how might I learn from this? So are you able to do that in the moment or do you need to remind yourself or work on yourself in order to keep that perspective in the particularly Challenge. Well, it's a great question. And I'd say in most moments, yes, it's ingrained and natural and hardwired now. The place that I still struggle and I'm improving on it is in being a parent. I'm being patient with uh, young daughters and being patient, loving with my wife, who is sees things through a different lens than I do. So the personal places in life are the places I need to take that pause. I have my emotional anchor right here, my thank you rock that I'll have in my pocket that I'll take a breath and stroke while I'm practicing patience. <laughs> I got a, I've got a rock too. This is mine. <laughs> ah! <Nice>. Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. So yes, in business scenarios and in things financial and things even on, on stage speaking, it all just happens and it's, I'm, I'm going to learn from it. It can be, I don't think it is good or bad or easy or hard anymore. It just is. It is something I have to take the time to intentionally practice in a few circumstances that trigger me in my personal life. That'd be my response. How about you? Yeah, so I very similar in that, like I've said earlier in our conversation, I think I'm a natural born optimist. The challenge for me is in our current climate in the world where we're more polarized than we've ever been. And I see such what's the technical term, idiotic behavior from so many people in such a public format through social media and whatnot, that I'm, I find myself having, here's the way I characterize it. I am still an optimist. Yes. I just have to work harder at it nowadays. So I find myself really having to work at it in certain circumstances. On a personal level, with the kinds of challenges that, that I shared with you today, it's a little easier. But when I look broader and more globally at our wonderful human race, I have to work at reminding myself why I think we're headed towards something great (laughs) and not something disastrous. And I do believe that's true, but I have more and more moments of doubt 
where I find myself wrestling with myself. And I think that's a good thing. And it also reminds me why the work that I do in business with this whole message of operationalizing love is really more important than ever. When we're together in a business, we have an opportunity to show the rest of the world what's possible. Because in in a business, where you come from, your disbeliefs, your ethnic background, your the color of your skin, your orientation, none of these things really matter because we're pursuing a common objective in the business. And a really healthy business embraces all those different points of view. And we're focused on, on we can make the decisions that we need to make in order to make it better for people that are there. And it's going to serve the bottom line and serve our customers and all. That to me is an opportunity to say to the rest of the world, look what we're doing here. And it's working pretty damn well. Maybe we can be examples. Business people can be examples of a positive thing. And I know there are businesses that are very far from that. And the corporate world has a reputation of being soulless and greedy and awful and evil. And I'm never a fan of overgeneralizations in any context, except that's an overgeneralization, <laughs> I guess. But we're overgeneralizing when we say business is evil. There are evil businesses, to be sure. We overgeneralize when we say people are evil. There are evil people, to be sure. But they are the exceptions, not the rule. And I think that the more we can prove that we can be joyful and productive and life-affirming in the way we conduct business, the better impact we have on the world as a whole. So this is the kind of stuff that I'm all the time. I remind myself, this is probably more important. Now Absolutely. This, op this optimism thing. And you're having a hell of an impact on the world, Steve. I can... As I mentioned, and I'll say it again, and I'll always yell on top of a mountain, your book may have been one of the first instances that I ever saw the word love in business. Uh, and now it's one of the big parts of my practice. And so I appreciate you for the influence you had on me. And I would go back to one of the things you shared. And I agree that if you watch social media, if you watch the news, then you got to be careful because you might be curating under the waterline, like negative hardwired attitude for yourself. You don't even realize it. Uh, and I would add that I believe that people like us who are optimists and who want to put more love in the world and who want to have an impact in what we would call a positive way, the world needs more of us and the world needs our radiance to shine brighter than everyone else's darkness who's spreading darkness. And there are a lot who are spreading it. It's on our shoulders and everyone listening to our show. And I know it may feel like a heavy burden, and it is, and we're up to it. So. I appreciate everything you've shared. You've really inspired me on our call today. I'm hoping, and this may be a big ask, I'm hoping maybe you might grab a guitar and sing for us. It is possible. Um, let me, yeah, let me see if I've got what I need to do that nearby. So I'm going to pull out a particular guitar. This is fantastic. This is fantastic. Steve is going back here to, ooh, the special guitars back here awesome awesome so this guitar is this guitar is a gorian which you've never heard of so you see the g on the headstock yeah uh, michael gorian was a guitar a luthier guitar maker in the late 70s 
early 80s, and his he made about 5,000 guitars. They're beautiful, handmade, just incredible sound. He made about 5,000 of them, and then his mill burned down, so he went out of business. And I have another one of my guitars hanging in the case there. It's a smaller version of this one. This is a Gurian Jumbo. I bought my first Gurian in 1977. I sold it. Good year. I sold it in 1981 okay. because I needed the money because of the story that I told you to feed people. And I got it back about 10 years ago. Your Gurian. The same one. Wow. Same one. Yeah. Same one. Same wow. one. Yeah. 30 years later, the woman I sold the two found me online, sent me an email just to say hi. Said, by the way, I still have that guitar you sold me. And I bought it back for the same price that she sold it to me. Because she said, because I never wanted to sell it. And she said that she's never been able to play that guitar without thinking about the look on my face and the pain that I had when I <laughs> sold it to her. So it just sat in her closet. So she sold it back to me. So then just about a month ago, I, I found this Gurian Jumbo for sale online and was able to scarf it up. So this was made in 1978. Wow. wow. I don't know how well. Can you hear it? All right. Loud and clear. All right, so I'm going to sing a song that is absolutely appropriate to the conversation that we've been having today, because it's all about it's all about challenges and how you come back from them. And I wrote this originally for my kids because I wanted to try to get across the idea that we write our own story. In 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 your life, you're writing your own story, and any good story has ups and downs, right? Any good story, the hero crashes and burns and then has to rebuild. Otherwise, it's not a good story. So the same is true for you. So write a good story for yourself. And when you have challenges, how do you come back from them? So the original inspiration for it was based on an old Italian proverb that said something like, the house is on fire, so let us warm ourselves. How's that for an eternal optimism <laughs> statement? Absolutely. So, so that's what this song is trying to capture. It's called Blaze of Glory, Ball of Fire. Just see if yeah, I usually like to have a little reverb and all that, but we'll do it. We'll just do it. We'll do it lo-fi style. Where the house is burning, let's warm ourselves. Rivers rising, let's fill our pills. The storm isn't blowing, let's raise our sails. That's the way it is. It never fails, it's always a dramatic story. And it's always down to the wire. May you go down in a blaze of glory. Come back in a ball of fire. Where the earth is shaking, let's learn to dance. Our hearts are breaking, let's find romance. The battle's raging, let's hold our stance. That's the way it is. It's not by chance, it's always a dramatic story. And it's always down to the wire. May you go down in a blaze of glory. Come back in a ball of fire. 
tree is falling, let's hear the sound. Ashes, we all fall down. The phoenix rising for one more round. That's the way it is. Lost and found, it's always a dramatic story. And it's always down to the wire. May you go down in a blaze of glory. And come back in a ball of fire. Don't fade, don't fade on me. Take a pen, take a napkin, write your next chapter, fill it with characters, fill them with love, give them some anguish to rise up above. And at the end of the story, at the close of the scene, when the obvious things are not what they seem, when the villain is vanquished and the hero redeemed, and the bounty is granted for all your good deeds, and you climb on the back of your mighty white steed and head for the sunset like the end of a poem and ride away home. Well, the house is burning, let's warm ourselves. And the earth is shaking, let's learn to dance. And the tree is falling, let's hear the sound. That's the way it is. We all fall down, and it's always a dramatic story. And it's always down the wire. May you go down in a blaze of glory. Come back in a ball of fire. May you go down in a blaze of glory. Come back in a ball of fire. Wow. I don't know how we can possibly top that. That was absolutely amazing. And especially those who are going to watch this on YouTube. Thank you, Steve Farber. That was freaking awesome. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. You know, twist my own place in music. <laughs> I didn't realize that was inappropriate to do that because some people are like, oh, I got to do that again. But you just embraced it and owned it and crushed it. Thank you. For people that, that would like to hear that song and a few others, I do have, it's, it is available on Spotify. It's on Apple Music. It's on the usual places. If you look for the name, of, I, I put out an, a number of years ago. It's called There's Not a Dream I Wouldn't Keep. And if you search for that, you should find it. And that song is one of the songs on there. Thank you. And my kids will be hearing that at the breakfast table tomorrow morning. I promise you that was phenomenal. Thank you, Steve. On that note, if there are other places we might find out more about you or if you'll see your book, see anything you're doing, where might we find out more about you, Steve? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. First of all, stevefarber.com is always a good place. And there's lots of videos and good verses there. But I'll tell you, of all the things that I have put out over the years, there's one that I would really highly recommend to people only because I get such great feedback on it. And that's the daily audio message. So if you go to the website, you're likely going to see a pop-up that gives you an opportunity to subscribe to it. Otherwise, you could go to dailyaudiomessage.com and subscribe there. It's Monday through Friday. It's a two-minute or thereabouts audio on various aspects of what I call extreme leadership. And it just come, arrives in your inbox Monday through Friday. I'm telling you, I just get such great feedback on it. If you don't like it, just unsubscribe and you'll stop getting it. Awesome. But I think you'll like I'll it. Go on right now. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate you being on today and sharing with our audience and 
It has been absolutely amazing. I love to close with the thought of eternal optimism. Eternal optimism. What does that mean to you, sir? It's it's having the lens that everything is going to be fine, better than fine. And I would add to it, even if it means you have to work at getting to that perspective, it's worth getting there because it has to be authentic. It's not about convincing yourself that you believe this when you really don't. It's about getting to the point where you really believe that's true. Outstanding. Outstanding. And then I would punctuate it by saying... Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.